play around? <laughs> Who's going to be around when I hit 100? <laughs> Lynn and I have been reading a book and uh, by a man who was a surgeon, maybe still a surgeon, from New York City. And uh, he's discovered that people recover better to surgery. Those who recover better to surgery and survive terminal cancer are those who when surveyed and asked, do you expect to be 100, say yes immediately. You expect to live to be 100. The people say, well, I don't think, you know, I'd like to live 100, but I want to live a certain life. You know, if, as long as no one has to take care of me. You know, and they have all these, you know, caveats. But the people who just say, yeah, I'm going to live to be 100, they're the ones who uh, survive surgery and actually uh, beat cancer many times. Uh, and now they've been, they've been doing studies up at Harvard on this, and they're starting to get the statistical uh, results on this. And they're discovering that this positive attitude, indeed, uh, allows you to live longer. The mind and body are not separate. They're part of each other. And uh, we need to realize that. We need to have the mind, God's mind in us. And we need to be trusting people. So anyway, uh, you know, Charlotte's going to have to make a major decision on Thursday, or on Tuesday. Bob prayed that we would be good representatives of Christ. And when we look at this passage today, I mean, it hits the nail right on the head in these two areas. So I want you to take your Bible and turn to Colossians. Okay? We are studying Colossians. Last week we did an overview and an introduction. And uh, today we're going to pick up at verse 3, and we're going to go down to verse 14. Now, in the Greek text of Colossians, verses 3 through 14 are one sentence. And they have two little themes in there. And we're going to see how this all works out. Now, as with most of Paul's letters, he opens Colossians with a prayer. And uh, he does this for a reason. When you pray, you not only communicate to God, uh, but you're conveying a message to your audience. And in this case, Paul is conveying to his Colossians audience that he's concerned about them. And uh, this is Paul's pastoral side. He is very compassionate for his readers, and he expresses his compassion through these prayers. And uh, since Paul has not met the Colossians personally, he's establishing a rapport with them by saying, I'm praying for you, and here's the reason I'm praying for you. And he starts giving these reasons, and he starts bragging about them. So before he lifts the Colossians up to God, uh, before he starts lecturing to the Colossians, about God, he starts lifting them up before God. Now here's how I'm going to outline the section, okay? These verses. The outline is going to be two points. Okay, verses 3 through 8. We're going to see Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. And then verses 9 through 14, Paul's prayer of intercession. Pretty simple. And you'll see how these two are linked together. Now let's look at Paul's prayer of thanksgiving in verse 3. 
We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now, just let's do those diagnostic questions that were so important. Uh, who? The who in this situation? He says we. That is Paul and Timothy. You see Timothy mentioned up in verse 1. So Paul and Timothy are praying together. Okay. Uh, what kind of prayer? Look, we give thanks. Okay, So he's thanking God for the Colossians uh, for some reason. Now look at this. When does he pray? He, at the end of verse 3 says, praying always. Okay. The subjects of the prayer, for you, you see that in verse 3, the object of the prayer is God, who is described as God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he identifies the God of Israel as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this is purely a Christian way of identifying God. The Old Testament Jews never considered God a personal father. But when Jesus talks about God, he says that God is his father. He has a relationship with God. And he says when we pray, we should be praying our father. So this is a God who is personal, a God who hears, a God who's not only concerned with the nation, but is concerned with individuals. And so... Paul is praying to God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's our Father as well. And so, we should have this relationship with God that the Father has with the child, and the child has with the Father. Now, here's the basis for the prayer. Look at verse 4. He says, We give thanks to God and our Father since we heard. Okay? Because we heard of something. And what did he? What did they hear of? What, what motivated them to pray? He said, we've prayed since we heard of something. What did they hear? Now look. Since we heard, number one, in verse four, of your faith. You see that? And then look toward the end of verse four. Since we heard of your, what? Love. You see that? The basis for Paul giving thanksgiving... To the Colossians, for the Colossians is because he's heard of their faith and he's heard of their love. Now, look at the object of the faith, their faith. We heard of your faith in what? Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, the one who died and the one who rose and is sitting in God's right hand. This is called saving faith. There is a faith that does not save. Many times I'll say to someone, why, why do you believe that you're saved? That you have salvation? And they'll say, because I prayed the prayer. Well, that's faith in what? Praying a prayer. That's faith in yourself. I prayed a prayer. Or, why are you saved? Because I walked the aisle. I remember when I was 16 years old, the preacher gave an invitation, I walked the aisle. Or, how do you know you're saved? Well, I invited Jesus into my heart. Oh, you did, huh? And you're saved because you invited Jesus into your heart? No, you're saved because faith has an object, and the object is Messiah Jesus, the one who died and rose again. So the object of their faith, and when he heard about that, notice he's not the one that led them to Christ, but when he heard about that faith in Christ, he and Timothy began to give thanks. Now look at the object of love. Verse 4. And your love for what? All the saints. Do you see that? Notice it's all the saints. 
they don't only love those that are around them, they love the saints that live in Jerusalem, they love the saints that live in Rome, Paul's in jail in Rome, and when we're talking about love, it means that they are doing something toward those people. They are ministering to those people. Now, when we talk about the word faith, let me tell you what it means. A lot of times we think that it means believe. Sometimes it's translated that way. But the word faith is a word that deals with posture. The word means to recline or to rest upon or to lean on. So they are leaning on Jesus Christ. Uh, if I took this chair and I sat down on this chair, I am trusting the chair. Now watch, when I do this, and I trust the chair, and I lift my hand, now guess what? What am I doing? Am I doing anything? No, the chair is doing it all. See? So, trust is when you stop doing anything yourself to be saved, and you trust Christ to do it all. You're reclining on Christ. You're putting your full weight on Christ. Does that make sense? So when Paul hears about that kind of faith, which is saving faith, he uh, starts praying for these people, and he gives thanks. Notice it's a prayer of thanksgiving. And he gives thanks when he hears about their love for the saints. And love means charity. The old King James used to translate the word charity. Faith, hope, and what? Charity. The modern translations say love. I like charity much better. Because love can be misunderstood. Charity is not misunderstood. Charity deals with selflessness and service and doing something on behalf of another person without expecting anything in return. It speaks of sacrificial giving. We give to a charity. See? And so these people are ministering sacrificially to all the saints, even the saints probably in Jerusalem, which means they're probably sending money to the church in Jerusalem. Remember, Paul would go around to churches and he'd collect money for the saints in Jerusalem because they were having some hard times. And probably the church at Colossae was ministering in this love, loving way to all the saints. Uh, it's the same kind of love you see demonstrated on the cross. It's the God kind of love. See, it's a universal love. Look at the breadth of God's love. God loved the who? The world. See, who do they love? All the saints. That's a God kind of love. You see the, the breadth of God's love. On the cross, you see the depth of God's love. God so, so loved. See, that the depth of God's love. What they are doing is they're imitating the love of God. And when Paul, through their actions... And when Paul sees this, and he and Timothy hear of this, they get this report, they break into praise. Now look at the, the motivation or the incentive for this love. Look at verse 5. Why do they do this? Because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. They are trusting Christ. They are ministering to the saints, what, in, what incentive do they have to do that? On account of, look at verse 5, the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Now listen carefully. It doesn't say heaven is the hope. 
doesn't say heaven is the hope. And most people think, heaven is my hope. Well, I hate to disappoint you. That's not your hope. That's where the hope is stored up. That's where the hope is laid up. That phrase laid up is a Jewish phrase and it simply means a guarantee. God has, in a sense, written a contract guaranteeing us a future. He's written a covenant. And it's like he's locked it in his safe in heaven and it's guaranteed. Your, your hope for the future is secure. The hope that Paul's talking about is the blessed hope. Which is what? Anybody know? The glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when we're what? Resurrected from the dead. That's the ultimate hope. It's not that we don't go to heaven. We do. But that's not the hope that he's speaking about. He's speaking about a hope that is something more than that. In fact, in verse 12, he calls it an inheritance. If you just look over there, an inheritance. And remember, when Israel entered the promised land, God gave them an inheritance. He divided and gave each tribe a parcel of property. And so there is an ultimate future, a promised land, uh, that we are going to inherit when Christ returns and we are raised from the dead and those of us who are alive are transformed. So I think it's the blessed hope that he's talking about here. So what we have is we have three words. We have faith, we have love, and we have hope. Those are the three major Christian graces. Now, remember Paul talks about that, doesn't he, in chapter 11? He says faith, hope, and love, and he says, but the greatest of these is what? Love. So if I said, what's more, what's the most important thing? You would say it's what? Love. What did Jesus say the most important commandment was? Love. Love God and then love your neighbor. So what we have here is that's the basis and the incentive for what they're doing is because of the hope that has been secured and it's laid up there in heaven. Now watch this in verse 5. Of which you heard before in the word where did they hear that how did they hear it it was in the word of truth of the what the gospel so when the gospel entered into Colossae uh, the message that was preached was not only invite Jesus into your heart or be saved type thing it included a message regarding ultimate salvation which is the resurrection. And they heard this through the truth of the gospel. And they have depended upon this. The truth of the gospel. Very important uh, phrase there because we're going to see in Colossians that there is a group of false teachers that are coming in and they're preaching another gospel very similar to Colossians. I mean very similar to Galatians. And they're going to come in and they're going to be preaching a false gospel. And Paul says, you got the true gospel, and you have been holding on to that true gospel. Now look what he says in verse 6. Which has come to you, that's specifically to the church at Colossae, as it has also in all the world, that's the same message that's being preached throughout the entire civilized world, the Roman Empire. And, look in verse 6, this gospel is bringing forth fruit. The gospel produces something. 
it produces fruit. When the gospel takes root, and a person relies totally on Christ, and not on himself for salvation, that produces fruit. Okay? It's very important that you get that produces fruit. As it is also, in verse 6, among you since the day... Notice it's been producing fruit in them since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. So from the start, there is fruit in a real believer's life. So a person who's walked forward and made some sort of commitment, and then they go out and they live like the devil, that is not salvation. That's a false gospel. The gospel in truth is a gospel that produces fruit. Okay. Now look at verse 7 and 8. As you also heard from Epaphras. That's the man who took the gospel to them in the first place. Look how he's described. Our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So, in verse 7, what happens is Epaphras preached the gospel to Colossae, and in verse 8, he reports back and tells Paul of the fruit that's in their life, the fruit of love. Notice it's called in verse 8, love that's in the spirit. It's not self-generated. It's not in the flesh. There are a lot of people who do, do what we call loving things, charitable things. It's motivated because they want to do it. It's just in the flesh. And it's not that they're bad things. They do, a, there's evil people do good things. You know that? And even a broken clock is right twice a day, isn't it? Yeah. And broken people and evil people, they do a lot of good things. Uh, but it's not as a result of, it's not fruit of the Spirit. It's just self-effort. And so Paul hears that they have, the gospel has taken root in their lives, and uh, there is fruit in their lives, and he and Timothy begin to Thank God for them. That's the prayer of thanksgiving. Now, in verses 9 through 14, we see the prayer of intercession. Now, watch the wording very carefully. Verse 9, for this reason, which means on account of, on account of the report that we've gotten, that you're the genuine article, we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and ask something for you. Okay? Now, notice that phrase in verse 9, since the day we heard of it. You see that? Since the day we heard of it. Now look back at verse 4. Since we heard. Do you see that? The basis for the prayer of thanksgiving was a report that Epaphras brings back to Paul and Timothy. And since they heard about that, They've begun to thank God for the Colossians. And now in verse 9, since we heard, since the reports come back, we've not only begun to thank God, he says now, he says, since we've heard it, we do not cease to pray for you. See? Cease to pray for you. And what's the content of that prayer? We do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you be filled with with the knowledge of his will. 
So there's the prayer of intercession. They, Paul and Timothy are praying that the Colossians will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now what in the world does that mean? What does the word filled mean? We're not talking about volume now. The word filled means controlled. Okay? Controlled. He's filled with anger! Oh, what does that mean? He's controlled by anger. Here, he wants them to be filled or controlled by knowledge of God's will. Now, we said that Charlotte is going to have to make a decision on Tuesday. And guess what our prayer for her should be? That she is filled with the knowledge of God's will in that situation. And that's what he's doing. He's praying that they will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And a lot of Christians aren't filled with the knowledge of God's will. We just go in and out every day and just make our own decisions and God's will and knowledge about God's will doesn't control us. We've had an experience with Christ, but we don't have knowledge of what God wants for us. That's why it's important that we have the Word of God. Because here we learn His will for us. And so that's what Paul prays for. Now, Look what he says in connection with this knowledge of God's will. That you be filled with the knowledge of his will, number one, in all wisdom, and number two, in spiritual understanding. Wisdom and understanding. Aristotle called these the two greatest virtues. Wisdom and understanding. Knowledge that results in uh, decision-making. Knowledge that results in decision-making. Insight that leads to application. And But this isn't human application. This is not just based on common sense. This is based on the fact that we have the Spirit. And the Spirit is giving us, is leading us in wisdom and in understanding. And so that's what we need. We need wisdom and we need understanding. We need to be like Solomon. We need to say when somebody comes and one says, this is my baby, and the other one says, this is my baby. Guess what? God gives Solomon wisdom. And he analyzes the situation. He makes the situation. And he makes the right, gives the right answer. And so that's what Paul is praying for on behalf of the Colossians. They are going to be facing these false teachers. And they're going to have to be making some decisions. Do they want to fall back into old-time Judaism to be circumcised and start keeping the law and Food laws and all these kinds of things. Okay. Now look at the goal of this intercession. In verse 10. He says, we're praying for this. That you'll have this knowledge. Now watch this. What's the purpose? That they have be filled with the knowledge of his will. In all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Verse 10. Here's the purpose for being filled with God's knowledge. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. The word worthy there, by the way, is actually an adverb. It modifies walking. It's not walking worthy, it's walking worthily. Walking worthily of the Lord. In other words, being a credit to the Lord. What Bob prayed, that we might represent Him accurately, that we might represent Him honorably. That's what it means. A lot of Christians don't represent Christ accurately, honorably, 
And uh, that's what he wants them to be able to do. Represent God honorably, worthily walk. Walk speaks of ongoing. Speaks of you're not just staying still. Some Christians just stay still. We need to be out there working in the world and be walking before the lost people in a way that's worthy of the Lord. And that's what they, that's the goal that he has in praying for that. And then we see all these participles here in verse 10. You know what a participle is? One of those ing words? Look at this. What does it mean, walking worthy of the Lord? Number one, fully pleasing him. ing. You see that? Fully pleasing him. That's what it means to walk worthy of the Lord. Are you fully pleasing Him? Number two, being fruitful in every good work. Being fruitful in every good work. Seeing results of your actions. And increasing in the knowledge of God. This is talking about progressive growth. A growing relationship in your knowledge and experience with God. Now, how do we accomplish all this? Look what it says in verse 11. Strengthened with all might. How much might? All might. We are empowered to do this. You say, that's hard to do. Guess what? No, it's not. If you're strengthened with all might, what kind of might? Look at the quantity of the might. How much might? All might. Look at the quality of the might. Strengthened with all might, according to His, look verse 11, according to His what? Glorious power. It's not your might. It's His might. See, that's what we need to learn to do, is to walk worthy of the Lord, depending upon His might, according to His might. How much might does He have? If it's according to His might, if I want to borrow, let's say, uh, $10 from uh, Don Morton over here, and according to His wealth, well, I get it. Of course, the man's a billionaire. Right? <laughs> I don't have to worry about anything. Because his resources are available to me, and I don't have to worry about anything. They're to do this according to God's might, to his glorious might. And you can't get any, any bigger than that, right? So the power comes from God based on his glorious nature. So... How big is God's might? What does he do in the beginning, he says? In the beginning, God what? That's pretty big. And guess what? That might's available to us. Moses? You mean the guy who says, I can't speak, Lord? You better not send me. I can't speak. I can't go to Pharaoh. Moses, lift up your staff and see what happens when the Red Sea opens up. That's according to God's might. Moses does that according to God's might. Beggar who can't walk? Peter and John say, Rise up and walk! And guess what he does? That's according to God's might. We don't believe it though, do we? Oh, we believe it theoretically. But this is the power that's available to us. It's all according to God's might. So that we can walk worthily of the Lord and represent Him accurately, according to His might. So, 
There's no excuse. We have no excuse when we say, well, that's hard to do. I just can't do that. I struggle. You know, one day I want to sin, the next day I don't. Hey, it's just you haven't tapped in to God's might. This is an enabling power. Now look what it says. It gives us power to do what? According to his glorious power, in verse 11, for all patience, how much patience? All patience. And long-suffering. Now, patience simply means the ability to wait for something. See, we don't want to wait. You know what we want to do? We don't want to wait on God's power to be demonstrated in and through us. We'll just take the bull by the horns and do it under our own strength. But God's power enables us to wait. Wait on the Lord. Don't jump ahead too fast. And experience long-suffering. Guess what that means? That means to suffer long. (laughs) That means even under persecution. God doesn't have to deliver you out of jail in one night like He did with Paul in the Philippian jail when God delivered him. Because in Rome, Paul stays in jail for two years. And we have to learn what it means to be persecuted and suffer and and just wait on God to show up. He doesn't show up on our schedule. And he said we're to do it with joy. Count it all joy when all these trials come your way. That's what Jesus' brother James says to us. So, Strengthened with all might, and we're talking about God's glorious might, for patience and long-suffering with joy. And then we have another one of these ING words. How do you do that? Giving thanks to the Father. Most of us don't give thanks to God when we're suffering and we have to wait on things. How long is this going to be? Giving thanks to the Father. That means... Gratitude speaks of an attitude of gratitude. A gratitude when you have to wait. Hey, we're Americans. We want instant everything. You know what it's like when you get on your internet and it takes a little time for the... You guys are old enough to know when there wasn't an internet. Now we're so impatient even over something like that. We should have an attitude of gratitude when we have to wait. It uh, hit me months ago when I had to wait in a light. And I just said, oh, and I'm saying, how long is this light going to last? I mean, I And I don't know if it was Lynn or... I thought in my mind and just said, hey, when you get stuck in a light for three minutes, you need to be praying. That's an opportunity to get quiet and listen to God and pray. We should have an attitude of gratitude when we have to wait. Giving thanks to the Father. Now, why should we give thanks to the Father? Look at that. This is great. Who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. First of all, we should give thanks because He's qualified us. Qualified us for what? To obtain this inheritance. Hey, that doesn't come the next moment. We're going to have to wait until Christ comes back to obtain that inheritance. So, and he's qualified us. How has he qualified us to obtain that inheritance? He's given us his spirit as a down payment, 
as a guarantee, as an earnest, which, which guarantees that we will be part of that resurrection. And uh, that's a promise that he has made to us. He's qualified us. I should be thankful and gratified that God has even chosen me to be saved. And he's qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. In the light of the gospel, in the light of Christ, in the light of truth. And look at the second reason. He's not only qualified us, look what it says in verse 13. He's delivered us. You see that? He qualified us. And look at this. He delivered us. That means he rescued us. What did he rescue us from? From the power of darkness. From Satan's kingdom. He's delivered us from the power of darkness. We're no longer subject to Satan and his powers of darkness. How did he deliver us? He delivered us at our conversion. By the way, Paul believes that Rome is under the power of Satan. It's a kingdom of darkness. And many of these people have given their allegiance, like the Philippian jailer, like Centurion, all these people have given their allegiance to the Roman Empire, and through the gospel they've been delivered. And they've been transferred out, rescued out of that kingdom. And look what he says in verse 13. And has conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. He's transferred us into Christ's kingdom. So Christ has a kingdom and Satan has a kingdom. And there are two kingdoms. There's a kingdom of darkness ruled by Satan, represented by Rome. And there is the kingdom of Christ, which is God's kingdom, over which Christ rules. So, when we get saved, we are delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And Christ reigns from at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and He reigns over the entire universe, whether people realize it or not. But Satan still is holding on for dear life. But he's on borrowed time. And he can use lost people to his ends. In fact, in Timothy it says he takes people captive at his will. Lost people. But he doesn't have that power over us because we have been delivered out from under his kingdom and we live under the reign of Jesus Christ. And therefore we should represent Christ, we should pledge our allegiance to Jesus Christ. And this is what's known as the already aspect of the kingdom. We have, we're already in the kingdom under the reign of Christ and that's, we're in the kingdom now, already. There's going to come a point when Christ comes back to earth and set up his kingdom on all the earth. That has not yet happened, but one day it will and we will rule and reign with Christ in glorified bodies. So, this is what's happened. He says the transfer has already taken place. God has reserved a spot for you in His ultimate kingdom. You have that inheritance. It's reserved for you already in heaven. He's got it locked away. The contract's locked away. He will come through. And then He describes the Son that He loves this way in verse 14. In whom we have redemption through His blood. In other words, redemption is a word that speaks of buying a slave off the slave market. 
And uh, when a slave, and even in, in America, when a slave was put on a slave market, someone could come and buy the slave. That was called redeeming the slave. We were slaves in the kingdom of Satan. Christ, through his blood on the cross and the resurrection, has redeemed us. He bought us with a price. And he brought us out of bondage. So it says, in whom we have redemption. Notice the redemption is in Christ. There's redemption in no one else. You see that? In whom we have redemption through his blood. And then he describes that redemption this way. The forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness of sin. So we, when judgment comes upon this world that's under the rule of Satan, that doesn't recognize Christ's rule and still pledges its allegiance to the powers of darkness, when judgment comes upon this world, we will not be judged with them because our sins have been forgiven. And so this is Paul's prayer. That's all one sentence. Christ took our punishment that we do not have to be punished. And so we have been free. So we have Paul's prayer of thanksgiving, verses 3 through 8, and Paul's prayer of intercession, verses 3 through 14. That leads into verse 15, which is a hymn that extols Jesus Christ. It's called a Christ hymn. And it's what I call an anti-imperial hymn. Because it's going to say that Christ is higher than Caesar. See, every knee, when Caesar comes by, every knee has to bow. But guess what? When Christ comes back, every knee will bow to him. Christ is God's authorized ruler and king. And so next week, we're going to look at that Christ hymn, and we're going to see that Christ is the ruler of the universe. And that's what we'll pick up next week in verse 15. Lord, we thank you for uh, a very important prayer that Paul lists before you which we believe was answered these people were were kept from falling into legalism you answered this prayer and these people know that Paul is concerned about them he's compassionate about them he wants their welfare Paul knows how to make friends and influence people. Oh Lord, help us to, before we start lecturing people, that we first pray for people. Help us to praise people before we start correcting people. Help us to learn the lessons that Paul gives to us in this chapter so far. In Christ's name.